Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. This is the word of God. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. To uh, invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us uh, this morning. Uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, the, the eyes of our hearts would be open to hear what you would have uh, for us this morning. Lord, if we need to be challenged, let us be challenged. Father, if we need to be comforted, let us be comforted. For we find both in your word. And most of all, Father, we just pray that your son Jesus would be made much of this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And it's been said that that money is a good tool and a bad God. The Pearl by John Steinbeck illustrates that truth very well. It follows the life of Kino, a pearl diver and his wife, Juana, and their infant son, Coyotito. So at the start of the book, Kino and Juana's simple life takes a frightful turn when young Coyotito gets stung by a scorpion in his cradle. The town's only doctor rejects care for him because they have no money. And that day, while Kino is diving for pearls, he finds a pearl so large and so perfect that all who see it say, it is the pearl of the world. Kino imagines a beautiful future for his family with education for his son, and a wedding and a church for him and for Juana. But the beauty and allure of the pearl grasp the attention of the greedy doctor, who tries to scam them, as well as thieves who come in the night to steal it. Juana becomes worried that the pearl will be the destruction of their family, and Bikino, he's certain of the contrary. One night when a thief comes to their house, Kino kills him. However, the rest of the thieves burned down their house. Kino, knowing that he had just killed a man and that he no longer had a home, ran with only himself, his wife, his son, and a small amount of food. Kino begins to go away from the town towards the capital in hopes that he might sell this pearl. One night as they lay in a cave on a mountain, three men come searching for them to kill them and take the pearl Right as Kino makes it close enough to attack the man with a rifle, attack the man, rather, the man who has a rifle, the man shoots in the direction of Juana and Coyotito. After a mad rampage of killing the men, Kino hears a weeping scream. Coyotito has been killed by a stray bullet. The book ends as Kino and Juana return to their home in silence and throw the pearl into the ocean. 
Steinbeck shows how quickly life can change when we meet sudden fortune. Fame, fortune, a chance at reputation and money, all these things are things that people will do just about anything for. Of course, with huge fortune often comes greed. Kino is seen at the start of the book enjoying the sunrise and paying attention to every little detail of that sunrise. And yet, when Kino finds the pearl, he immediately becomes dissatisfied with what he has. He begins dreaming of what he could have, focused almost entirely on the future and not the present. Kino becomes more worried about trusting other people. He doesn't even trust his wife. Kino's greed begins to peak when he actually attacks his wife and then proceeds to kill a man. And then at its absolute peak, Kino becomes reckless enough to let Coyotito die and kills three men viciously with no mercy or remorse. Money is a big deal. It's important. We need it to live. Certainly, God is more capable of providing way beyond what we need without a penny. He can do that. But the normal means of material provision is money. We work and save to have money, to buy food, shelter, and clothing. We work and save to share with the church, with missionaries, and with brothers and sisters in need here at the church. But as Coyotito, or excuse me, as Kino experienced, D.L. Moody puts it this way, wealth to most men proves nothing more or less than a great rock upon which their eternity is wrecked. The, booty can, the, the, Bible, the Bible contains more than 500 references to prayer and almost 500 references to faith. But there are more than 2,000 references to money and possessions. Out of 38 parables that Jesus told in the Gospels, 16 are how we deal with money and possessions. Jesus said more about money and possessions than about heaven and hell combined. One of every 10 verses in the Gospels deal with money and possessions. How we handle our money is perhaps the truest indicator of the spiritual condition of our hearts. But maybe money's not an issue for you. I think Nate alluded to this. Maybe you've got a good handle on its role in the, your life, but, but we'll see from Jesus' interaction with this man, anything, anything can be a barrier to entering his kingdom. And here's the, this, this is what the, the, the idea that I want to kind of put to you this morning, and, and um, hopefully we, we can bear this out from the scriptures. Idolatry pulls at our hearts, and, want, and money is one of the most challenging and deceitful of all the idols. But whatever our idols are, we must continually tear them down to enter life and be free. Now, to just set this in the context where we are this morning, Matthew 18, uh, chapters 18 through 20 is a cohesive teaching unit with really a common theme. Who are the members of God's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom? What, what are the marks of their relationship with God, with one another? Think back, right? We have Matthew 18 and about Jesus leaving the 99 to find the one, right? We have uh, loving restoration, restorative love, also known as church discipline, perhaps, from the uh, middle of chapter 18. Then you've got forgiveness in the back half of chapter 18. Last week, we heard about divorce, and here, right after that, we, we learn about money and, and more about what Jesus' kingdom uh, 
is like. And so, really, today's passage continues that teaching with this dialogue between the rich young ruler and Jesus, and then Jesus and his disciples. And it's about money, it's about idolatry, it's about entering the kingdom, and it's about eternal rewards. So I've outlined our passage as follows. Point one, a case study of wealth. I think you might write in worldly wealth. And then point two, the dangers of worldly wealth. And then lastly, finding true wealth. So let's look at point one in your outlines, a case study of worldly wealth. And we'll look at verses 16 through 22, which which Daniela read. So who is this rich young ruler. We really don't know much about him. From the passage in Matthew, what we learn is he's wealthy, he has great possessions, and he's a young man. Um, And this same account is actually given in Mark and Luke as well. Um, And in Luke, we actually learn that Luke refers to him as a ruler. So this is why quite often he's referred to as the rich young ruler. So he comes up to Jesus and he asks this question, teacher, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? So just a couple of observations about our rich young ruler here. First, he's earnest. He's earnestly seeking Jesus. He really wants to know, how can I have eternal life? The second thing that we can observe about him is that the way he is going about it is wrongheaded. He wanted to earn salvation. What must I do? What is the thing that I can do to earn salvation? He, he really, if you think about it, wanted to put God in his debt. God, if I can do X, Y, and Z, then you'll owe me eternal life. Here's the reality. He's really not that different from everybody sitting in this room right now. We're all wired that way, whether you realize it or not. That's kind of how... Uh, our fallen nature works. I just want to point out three things about our fallen nature that we can learn just from this question right here from this rich young ruler. The first one is this. Our fallen nature is transactional, right? When we're operating out of the flesh, for, for a believer that's not living out of the spirit, but instead living out of the flesh, we enter into relationship with other people. We dialogue with other people thinking, what can I get from this person? What are they trying to get from me? How do I protect myself? How do I win? That has nothing, of course, to do with the spirit. But that's our fallen nature. We're kind of transactional. Our fallen nature is also prideful. You know, when we, again, when we operate from the flesh, we don't want to be in anyone's debt. We don't want to have to owe anybody anything. We really do want to sort of earn things our way and do things our way. I think this is actually kind of a subtle point about the gospel. I think for people that have heard the gospel and have yet to say, I submit, as we sang, I surrender all. I think one of the hard things about that is it requires you to lay your pride down and say, I can't do it. I need help. That's really, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit helping you get to that place. That's how hard it is. We'll talk more about that later. So, and lastly, our fallen nature. So, our fallen nature, it's transactional, it's prideful, and lastly, it's deceived. Our fallen nature is deceived. We're kind of like that little boy who believes he has superpowers and thinks he can fly, but learns that gravity always wins. We're tempted to believe that sin doesn't impact us that much, but we don't understand how deep 
and pervasive sin is. So, so from this place of being kind of transactional, of being prideful, of being deceived, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks, what good deed can I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says this, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Now, Jesus isn't saying he's not good, of course, right? But what he's trying to do, he's already starting to help this man unwind some of his misconceptions. You see, the rich young ruler, he didn't understand God's holiness. He was comparing himself to others, right? Compared to everybody else around me, I'm doing really well, Lord. What else must I do? I mean, that's a really natural thing to do. You've heard people say, maybe you've even said it yourself, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. But when we say that, what do we really mean when we say that? What we mean is, I'm a good person compared to you and to the guy across the street. And on a relative basis, maybe true, maybe not true. But there's a problem with that thinking. It's kind of like when the teacher, if you guys can rewind the clock, go back to high school for most of you. It's kind of like when you got an A on your trig exam because the teacher graded on a curve and you only got 43% of the questions right. You know, it's like, hey, I got an A. You know, the reality is you may be an A relative to your classmates, but with God's holy standard, the only passing grade is 100%. God is not grading on a curve. And no one gets 100%. No one is perfect. I think it's natural, though, having said all of that. I still think in our fallen nature, it's natural for us to think that we can understand and grasp some of God's holiness, right? That we can really understand it and still think that we can maybe measure up in some fashion. But again, I don't think that really, or rather, I think that that demonstrates that we don't fully comprehend the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of God's holiness. Interstellar, for those of you who are familiar, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. It's it, if it's not my favorite movie, it's like right up there. It is definitely one of my favorite movies for a number of reasons. Um, you could see me after if you're curious as to why. But um, astronauts are sent across the galaxy to find a suitable home for human, uh, the human race. So four astronauts venture to a distant planet that's actually pretty close to a black hole. And through their study of relativity, I mean, these are, these are astronauts, right? You've got to have a PhD in physics. Right? You've, got to, you've got to be really smart. So these are scientists. Um, as they venture, uh, through, or rather through their study of relativity, they, they understand that when they're on this planet that's so close to this black hole, that they're going to experience time differently than the mothership. And certainly then Earth will experience time. In fact, for them as they experience time, it's going to feel normal to them, but it's going to be much faster farther away from this black hole because of this black hole is this gravitational pull that's pulling even time into it and sort of sucking it away. At least that's the theory. And so three explorers go to the planet knowing that they must move fast, that they've got to quickly determine if this is a place where they can set up a new colony. Like 10 minutes. They've got to be in and out kind of thing. So they encounter, when they're on the planet, they encounter great difficulty. And they're gone a total of about an hour. Now, they know that that's far too long. They know that much time has passed back on the mothership. And when they finally get there, the man who stayed back greets them at the airlock. He looks much older. His hair is grayed. His face is wrinkled. 
he's got kind of slouching shoulders. And they ask him, how long have we been gone? And he says, 23 years, 8 months, and 4 days. And in stunned silence, one of the astronauts mutters, I thought I understood relativity. And I think it's the same thing with our understanding of God's holiness. We think we get it, but we don't. Not to the depth, at least, of his holiness. And while entering into heaven, we'll be glorious. We all look forward to that day. I don't wonder if there will be a moment when, like Isaiah, we say, woe is me. I thought I knew your holiness, but now I see. And so it is with this rich young ruler. He thought he knew God's standard. He thought he knew his holiness, but he did not. So Jesus concludes by saying, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, note that Jesus changes his wording here. The man said, how can I have eternal life? What does Jesus say? If you would enter eternal life. And the rich young ruler responds, well, which ones? Which commandments? I will say this about the rich young ruler. If I ever needed a lawyer, I'd hire this guy. Right? It's kind of like Jesus says, keep the commandments. He goes, well, which ones? Are there some I don't need to, to obey? Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is bringing the law to this man to put a mirror in front of him. Jesus doesn't mean to say that if you'll keep these commandments, he'll be saved. He's just bringing this mirror in front of him to say, here's what you actually look like. And the rich wrong ruler responds, well, all these, ha- all these I've kept. All these I've kept, but what do I still lack, Jesus? Now, I think if it had been me talking to this rich young ruler, what I would have said was, what you lack, friend, is self-awareness. <laughs> That's the nature of sin. It's blinding, isn't it? You don't know. <laughs> you're blind and you don't even know that you're blind. And thankfully, Jesus isn't like me. He was much more gentle and loving. Now, I mentioned that, that Luke and Mark record this same event, but Mark's account has a note that the other two don't. At this exact point in the story, Mark writes that Jesus looked at him and loved him. You see, Jesus knows that this man's issue is his money. It's become his identity. It's given him his sense of worth, his power and control. His money is his idol. It's the ruling authority in his life. Even more, even though outwardly he would obey everything that a good Jew would obey, inwardly the thing that drove him, that motivated him, that ruled his life was money. And Jesus knew that if he didn't remove it from his life, he would never be able to actually enter into eternal life. And if he doesn't part ways, part ways with his wealth, now it will be ta- that wealth will be taken away from him forever when he dies. And so Jesus knows that as long as this man loves his possessions more than him, he'll never experience true life. And Jesus doesn't want that for him. Jesus loves him. He looked at him and loved him. This is the gentle and lowly Savior. Sometimes gentle and lowly, though, can hurt. So Jesus looks at him and loves him, and he cuts him with these words. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, 
follow me. This was actually the most loving thing that Jesus could do. We read that the man went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. His sorrow was really like grieving. He wasn't just sad. He was grieved at what Jesus had told him because he loved his stuff. He loved his money so much. And it's almost like he knew his love of money was a great weight in his hands, pulling him deeper and deeper in the surface, from the surface of the water and the life-giving air of Jesus. But he could not let go. Indeed, for me at least, this is one of the more sobering and somber episodes of the Gospels. Jesus' normal interaction, if you think about it, outside of the Pharisees, his normal interaction with people is redemptive. This one's really painful. It's a story about a group of English explorers, explorers who died near the North Pole because they made poor choices. This is 1845. Instead, you know, they took two ships, and instead of providing room on board those ships uh, for storing additional coal for their steam engines, they brought a large library, they brought an organ, they brought fine china, they brought the good silver, even glass wine goblets. And when they ran out of coal, their books, their china, their organ, their silver, their wine goblets, it actually didn't help them stay warm, and they froze to death. 128 men died. Years later, when the search party found the remains of the men who'd set off to walk for help, they discovered one skeleton grasping in his hand a place setting of the sterling silver flatware. It's a stark picture of their foolishness. Kent Hughes summarizes, this rich young ruler acted as foolishly as that dead British explorer. But instead of trying to carry sterling silver through the frozen Arctic, this man was trying to carry all his possessions through the tiny entrance into the kingdom of God. And just as all those explorers had to do was make their ships, make sure their ships had more coal and fewer luxuries, so too all this rich man needed to do was unhinge this huge weight off of his back and walk as a small man, a poor man, a humble man, a childlike man, walk in faith uprightly through the small and narrow way. I think it's interesting, many people undoubtedly Many, many more people came up to Jesus and asked him questions that are not recorded. But three of the four gospel authors saw fit to include this story, this case study. And why is that? It's because money and possessions are something every person must deal with. And that takes us to the second point in our outline, the difficulty of wealth, or if you have a pen, the difficulty of worldly wealth. So let's read verses 23 through 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Well, then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, I heard of a pastor in a, in a wealthy retirement enclave talking about shepherding his church. And someone asked him, Pastor, what's the hardest part 
about shepherding your church, about pastoring your church? And he replied, I'm shepherding a lot of camels. Why is it so hard for those with excess resources, wealth, and possessions to enter into God's kingdom? I'll just give you three quick reasons. Money gives the mirage of control over your life, right? It makes you think, well, if that breaks, I can just replace it, no problem. If I get sick, it's no problem. We'll just go get the very best doctors that there are. Things are, you want something at your doorstep, especially in today's day and age, you can have it there in about 10 minutes, right? It gives you the mirage of control. But do you remember the story about the wealthy man who had a lot of crops and barns? And he was very pleased with himself, wasn't he? Right? And he said, I'm going to tear down these barns and build bigger barns so I can store all my stuff. And what did God say to him? He said to him, fool, tonight your life will be required of you. We are not in control. It's a mirage. But money can give you that mirage. Money often brings authority. Number two, money often brings authority and power over others. It's not uncommon for that to be the case. With with great wealth also comes great responsibility. And number three, money tempts you to think that you are better than others. You You might be tempted to think, because I worked hard, because I made these good decisions, I'm a better person. Probably don't verbalize it exactly like that, but you have to ask yourself what's happening in your heart. So in effect, too much money can lead you to believe that you don't need God. Even worse, it can make you think you are God, right? So what is your relationship with money? Does it rule you? You know, it looks different from person to person. For some, it looks like accumulating more and more and more. J.D. Rockefeller said this, how much, somebody asked him rather, how much does it take to satisfy a man completely? And he said, it takes a little bit more than he has. So we know that, that riches are deceitful. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 tells us that. And I think often we think of this example here of, from Rockefeller of accumulating more and more and more as being sort of the, that's the thing that we need to watch out for with money. Are we satisfied? But it rules the miser as well. How is that? The miser loves their, so, their money so much that they won't spend it. And I'm not talking about being frugal. I think the Lord loves a frugal person. But the miser is so in love with their money, they won't spend it at all. They're caught up in wealth and possessions just as much as the one who wants more and more and more. I think it's easy for us to perhaps judge those who have a lot and are caught on that treadmill of getting more and more and more. But honestly, brothers and sisters... It's just as much a symptom of love of money if you never spend it at all. Now, you might think you don't have a problem with money. You could be sitting out here, this is great, Ben. I don't have a lot of money. This isn't an issue for me. I don't expect to ever have a lot of money to where I might be deceived by these kinds of things. But let me just ask you a few questions. Are you satisfied with how much money you make? Would you like to make a little more? Do you want to purchase more things? I mean, like when you're bored, do you open up Amazon and go look at your list of stuff? Does your desire for money and possessions choke out your interest in pursuit of God? Just honestly ask yourself that question. 
And that takes us to Matthew 6.24. We're going back to the Sermon on the Mount from a number of months ago. And Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But here's the thing. And Jesus, of course, is talking about money here. The rich young ruler is all about money. But there's broader application for us, again, as Nate alluded to. While the rich young ruler's issue was money, the fundamental, I think the fundamental idea, really the bedrock idea, and why even if you're like, hey, money's not a thing for me, this still applies to you, and here's why. This passage is as simple as, can you actually obey the first and second commandment perfectly? You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any idols for yourself. The reformer John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a, a perpetual factory of idols. Of course, we aren't talking about physical idols. We're talking about what goes on in our hearts. What are the things in your life that you value more highly than God? So how do you recognize an idol? What do you daydream about? You know, when you're bored and you're just sitting there and nothing's going on, where does your mind go? What captures your imagination? What motivates you? And motivation, by the way, can feel a lot like fear. It's not always positive. Oftentimes, it's not positive. What motivates you? The rich young ruler did all, the, all that a good Jewish man would do, but he was ultimately, at the end of the day, what motivated him was his money. He loved his possessions more than he loved God, and when he was put to the test, he couldn't let go. And so I think the question for us this morning is, what do you value more than God? Is there something in your life that you need to bring before him? Is there anything in your life that's taken first place in front of the Lord? Let me just give you a few examples. Maybe it's autonomy and self-determination. You like to have control of what your day looks like, where you go, what you're doing. You don't even leave enough room for the Holy Spirit to move you. You don't leave room to be available, so to speak, for what the Lord might have for you that day. Maybe it's sex. In the context of marriage, sex is a good gift, but outside that context, whether it's alone in front of a screen or with someone who isn't your spouse, it's a pleasure that's intoxicating and addictive. Maybe it's comfort, right? Comfort, pleasure, new experiences. When you get done with a vacation, is your very next thought, where are we going next? And then that's all you think about until you're on, where you have a really nice dinner and then all you're thinking about is, when's my next great dinner? These are good things. I'm not saying they're bad things, but where does your heart? Maybe it's intelligence. I remember a pastor at a couple of churches, um, actually here in Denver. He, um, I just had never heard anybody say this before. He said, uh, intelligence can be a god. It can be an idol. Do, do when you meet somebody, maybe when you meet somebody who's made millions of dollars running a business, you're like, eh, so what? That doesn't do anything for me. But then you meet somebody who's got two PhDs, they can speak in seven languages and whatnot, and you're like, wow, that person's amazing. You might have an issue with intelligence, right? I heard a man actually along those lines, I think we're all uh, possible to the, um, this could happen to any of us. I heard a man confess that he once, um, he much more enjoyed learning about God than being with God. And I thought it was such a keen insight, and it's true of many of us. It's easier to accumulate knowledge than to be in relationship. 
Maybe it's kids. And there's a lot of people with kids in this room, a lot of us, me included. It is so easy to tie your identity to your kids' performance, their achievements, their behavior. And there could be some other things going on there. Maybe, you're, maybe you struggle with what other people think about you. And when your kid misbehaves, you're not worrying about the fact that their hearts misaligned with what the Lord would have them to do. And you're more worried about what the people around think about you. That could be a God as well. Maybe it's your family. Now, that's, maybe that's controversial. How could family become a God? Well, I think in this cultural moment where family is being redefined and even looked down on, it's natural. We need to be countercultural, right? That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus, especially in this moment. It's natural to push back on that, but it can even become a God, even to the detriment of your eternal family, the church. You avoid the gathering of the church for your kids or for your family. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. All of these things are good things, but we make them the ultimate thing, or when we make them the ultimate thing, they actually imprison us. These are all false gods that will end up imprisoning us, and left unchecked, they could actually kill us ultimately. Here's the other thing. There isn't a single person in this room who doesn't struggle with one of these or something else. This is not meant to be exhaustive. We all struggle with this in some form or fashion. Not one of us perfectly lives and fulfills that first and second commandment, right? And that's why so much of Jesus' teaching is about forsaking yourself and the things you love for him, for him and for his sake, and for the eternal rewards that he gives. And I think it's interesting, we sang couple of songs this morning. I didn't know we were going to sing them. Um, I surrender all. How appropriate. Are we really willing to surrender all for King Jesus? Do we really believe him when he says that his burden is easy and his yoke is light? Do we really believe him when he says, I have eternal rewards for you, far better than anything you could ever imagine in this life? Do we actually think he's telling the truth. It's really hard because we're tactile. It's much easier to believe the thing that we can see and touch and feel. But he's true. He's honest. He's good. He's right. We know that's true as well. Well, when the disciples heard that not even a rich man man could enter into eternal life, they were stunned. And I I never knew this until I studied this passage. The reason why is because in those days, um, it was actually seen as God's blessing, right? Like, how could a wealthy man not enter into eternal life? Like, he's already effectively got God's eternal life. Look at how much God has blessed him with, with wealth and possessions. But Jesus turns that upside down and points out that it is the heart that matters, not these external circumstances. And he looks at them And he says, he gives us hope right here. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Listen, it's impossible for you and me to be completely free of sin. Even something that sounds so severe as idolatry is present to one degree or another in each of us. Now, some, by God's grace and great effort, because it takes both, are more sanctified than others. But no one is perfect. There's no 100%. 
No one on their own strength and merit can force their way through the eye of that needle. None of us. You need a miracle to do that. And that miracle is the gospel. That great exchange where Jesus died for your sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. The offended for the offender. (laughs) The king for his enemies. The innocent for the guilty. How about this? The law keeper for the scofflaw and the rebel. The lawgiver for the lawbreaker. That's the miracle of the gospel. And through that miracle, we gain his righteousness. Imagine that. That that there's nothing that we need to do. That by virtue of his perfect life and his atoning death, we too can have, we can make that 100% on God's exam because we have his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection. In the impossibility of thinking, I will never be able to overcome this idol. I'm never going to be able to let go of this thing that I love so much, and it seems really important to me, becomes possible. And it is possible through his grace, grace and through his sacrifice. When we come to trust God and believe he is who he says he is, we enter into that miracle of eternal life by Christ's death. And then that is when we actually start to discover true wealth. That takes us to our last point in the outline, finding true wealth. Read with me verses 27 through 30. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are last will be first and the last. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Peter asks a very understandable and revealing question. The disciples had left everything. I mean, Matthew actually had wealth. He was a tax collector. John and James owned a boat. They must have had some kind of resources, and they left it all behind. Peter's saying to Jesus, we did what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. What does that mean for us? And Jesus tells him two things. The first thing that Jesus says is, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's really hard to interpret this. Um, It's a number of interpretive difficulties. For example, is the new world the thousand-year millennial reign, or is it the new heavens and the new earth after that? Disagreement amongst the scholars. Well, what does it mean to judge? Is it judgment like the final judgment, or is it judgment like ruling? A little bit more consensus around ruling on that one. Well, who's doing the judging? Is it just the 12 disciples, or is it all believers? Lots of disagreement, like I said, but putting this statement in the context, I think, of everything we know from the Bible, the best conclusion is that Jesus is saying that all believers will rule in some form or capacity with him during his millennial reign. The point is, though they've given up much in this life and abased themselves to follow him, they will gain much and be very honored and esteemed in eternal life. And then Jesus says that everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother, children, lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. 
There's no interpretive challenges here. Jesus says that there will be rewards for leaving behind cherished and loved things. And he concludes with this, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is telling us that his kingdom is not like we would imagine. It's a kingdom that belongs to those who come in childlike faith. It's the main point of verses 13 through 15, a theme repeated, we'll see repeated twice in chapter 20. Craig Blomberg writes this, the children turn out to be nearer to the kingdom than most would have, has, would have suspected. And the rich man demonstrates that he is farther away than most would have guessed. We have to pause and realize how upside down this is. And again, I know who most of you are. I know a lot of your backgrounds. And we can become a little numb. Like, well, of course, the first will be last and the last will be first. Do you realize how upside down that is from everything outside of these walls and outside of his kingdom? Kingdoms belong to those with power, with might, with strength, with intelligence, with guile, with savvy, with wisdom, right? But Jesus says, nope, my kingdom belongs to those who come to me like children, trusting, without guile or manipulation, no transaction taking place, not trying to earn a favor, just gladly receiving the gift given. That's how you enter the kingdom. In my kingdom, it appears that those will be last will actually be first. Now, one of my kids played the Would You Rather game with me recently. This is a game where you ask somebody to choose between two bad choices, like would you rather eat a frog or get into a, sand, or get into a box with snakes? Two terrible choices, never a good answer. So the question put to me was, would you rather be in prison or on the streets? And we talked about it. A prison offers clothing, shelter, food, TV. Usually there's a library, some measure of freedom. But ultimately, you have no control over your life. Someone else tells you where to sleep, what to eat, when to wake up, when to go to bed. And you can't, and you can't leave this kind of relatively small space. Now, being on the streets, you don't really get any of that. But it offers freedom, the ability to choose where to go and when. Now, I think that's obviously an imperfect analogy, but it reminded me of this question that Jesus is putting to us here this morning. Would you rather be in the prison of your idols, serving them for fear of losing them, losing your money, your comfort, your status, and so on? Would you rather, or would you rather let go of those things and be free with him? Here's the funny thing about those idols. They promise freedom. They actually promise that they're going to be good for you, but they're the worst thing for you. They're the worst thing for us. Jesus looks hard, but when you get into the yoke with him, what you find is his burden is easy and his yoke is light. And it may feel impossible, but Jesus will not leave you to do it alone, this, this shedding off of idols and coming, surrendering and coming to follow him. So whether you are a longtime follower of Jesus and need help to, get, to let go of an idol, that's grown in your heart. Or you are new to all of this. Maybe you're our guest this morning. If you are, I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you're new to all of this. And you're feeling this magnetic pull to Jesus. What is it about this guy? Why is he so interesting? Why can't I stop thinking about him? 
and you aren't sure what to do next, for both of you, I would say simply pray and ask for his help. He is the king of impossible. Please stand with me as we pray. God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we need your help. We are uh, from the most senior saint here to the one who maybe is an unbeliever, has not actually entered into relationship with you and to the, to the, the sweetness of life that is in you. Across that entire spectrum, we need your help. Lord, we want to follow you. We want to surrender, but we also recognize it as hard. So Lord, give us your spirit to be able to do that. Uh, and Lord, help us uh, as we go now in your grace and your mercy and peace uh, to be a beacon of the freedom that is in Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen.